Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. If you uh, have a Bible, that's about three quarters of the way through the first book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it'll be up on the screen, or you can just uh, Google NIV Matthew 27, and we will start in verse uh, 26, actually. What if I brought a swastika into this room and I wore it as a necklace? What if I placed it outside of our church building? What if I put it on, our, on a greetings card or a religious holiday card? What if I had it as a pendant? I would hope you would find that revolting. You know, symbols have meanings. And the symbol of the cross has changed over 2,000 years. The cross was an excruciating way to die. It was for criminals. It was public shame. It was an act of power. It was the Roman Empire saying, if you cross us, this is what we'll do to you. They would put it out in public just to remind everyone, and we'll do it to you too if you cross us. This is where your body is broken. This is where your body is shamed. This is where you are left naked outside to die. Your bowels are emptied. Your bones are often broken. You're, this is not a, a symbol that you would have tattooed on your body in the first century. This is not a symbol that you would want to wear around your neck ever. And so we come to the irony and the paradox of the central message of the Bible. You know, we've been going through the story of the Bible all fall. The creation is good. The creation is marred then by sin. God makes this promise that a child will come and will crush the serpent's head. Years pass. Here comes Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. I will give you land. You will have offspring. The offspring will turn into a nation. This nation will bless all the nations. And they grow, and they eventually end up in Egypt and are enslaved. Until Moses comes and leads the people out of Egypt, he, they meet with God on the mountainside. God gives them rules, a law for how they are to interact with him. They are to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They're supposed to love their neighbor as themselves. And then he gives them kind of boundaries for how they will interact with the holy God and the sacrificial system and how the nation will interact with each other and other nations and refugees and migrants and uh, all, the, all these laws, how to deal with war. And so they go into the land, and they take some of it, and the judges come into power, and the judges do a terrible job, essentially. And so here comes a king, and one king in particular is King David, and he's promised an everlasting dynasty. You will have someone on your throne forever, David. And within a couple generations, there's no one on the throne. And they're in exile, and they're, they're deported, and they've been besieged by Babylon and Assyria. Ezra and Nehemiah lead them back into the land, and they don't really get the way that it was, but they're happy to be there. And then Rome comes and conquers them and occupies them again. But the Jews are the stubborn group. They refuse to bend the knee to the Roman gods. And into that comes Jesus. He's born to a teenage mom, raised in the house of a, of a carpenter, and then after three years of itinerant ministry, we come to his death. This issue is so uh, central to the Christian faith that the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 or 30 years later, this is of first importance that Jesus died for sinners. In fact, if this is not true, this is stupid. I don't even know what I'm doing is what Paul said. We should be pitied. 
And so we come to the main event, the central part of the story, that to be a Christian, you have to get this part right. This is the part. We can disagree on a lot of things. You cannot disagree on this. This is at the center. This is the bullseye. So I just want to talk about what happens in Matthew 27. And, you know, unlike other gospel writers like the Gospel of John, there's no commentary here. This is just Matthew giving you the facts of what happened, but in doing so and how he arranges it, he actually makes commentary for us. So we'll see a helpless king. We'll see a forsaken savior. We'll see the finished work. I just want to show you what happens in Matthew 27. Here we go. Verse 27 through 44, the helpless king. You know, my favorite kind of uh, stories are the ones where someone tells us about how much power they have, and then they get beat. They, they are, they're puffed up, they're prideful, they tell everyone they're going to be the victor, and then they lose. That's a great story, right? In Matthew 27, it seems that Jesus has failed. In fact, if, if you read people who hate the Bible, Bart Ehrman, former evangelical, now professor in North Carolina, he said this event, the cross event, is actually the symbol of failure in Jesus's ministry. Like, this seems to be the end. And you know, if you're experienced this, not reading it 2,000 years later, it might seem like the end. And so let's go through it. Verse 26, what happens first? Jesus gets flogged. So this is at the end of the trial. There's been an interrogation where Jesus has been beaten too, but now he's going to be flogged. And this is going to be super specific because what the Romans would do is if someone was going to be crucified, they would grab the guy, they would lift his arms above his head and stretch out his back so the back was tight so they could rip the skin off. Then they would have these whips called flagrums, and they, it was a cattail, nine, nine cattails. And so you'd have nine whips coming out of a whip, and in the leather there would be sharp metal or sharp sheep bone. And so two men are now standing next to Jesus, and at, at, one after the other is going, one, rip, two, rip. And so when they, whip, when they would whip Jesus, you'd get the whip. And when they'd pull, they'd get the skin. The goal was to essentially not kill him, but almost kill him. Sometimes people would die. Not everyone could, would make it to the crucifixion. So here are the two soldiers. And so you can imagine they're going at Jesus. There's no limit to how they can do. And then you have to put wood on the back. So there is no skin left at the end of this. His skin is ripped off. It's just shreds. Now for the group of soldiers, verse 27 through 31. So this is barracks humor. So the soldiers are bored. What are we going to do? We've got some time. We've, he's been beaten. He's probably just on the ground. And so they strip him and they put a scarlet robe on him. Why do they put a scarlet robe? That's the color of royalty. They're mocking him. And then they take crowns and it's a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Now, you've probably walked through a thicket with pants on. You get one sticker in your pants and you're frozen, right? You're like, no more. Can't do it. Well, this guy Jesus has a crown put on his head and his thorns and it's pressed into his skin. And then they give him them a reed. Some of, some of your translations will say a staff, but it, it's more like a limp staff and he's holding it. So here, here's the image. You've got Jesus with his skin ripped off. You've got the cloak on him, which is now sticking to his back. You've got the scepter in his hand and you've got the crown of thorns and they are mocking him. 
And do you know what Jesus says? Nothing. This is the recurring theme. He says nothing. He does nothing. They're hail king of the Jews. They're spitting on him. They're striking him. They're striking him with the staff over and over again. So it's time to go. And Jesus begins walking, verse 32. And they were going. They met a certain man named Cyrene, from Cyrene named Simon, who was forced to carry his cross. Now, it was customary that the person who would, was being crucified would have to carry it. So they'd lift up the, the, the wood across his back and they would tie a rope around him and he would begin to carry this thing. This is 75 to 125 pounds. And he is supposed to now carry this to Golgotha, which we don't know where that is. Everyone has guesses. No one is quite sure. And so he is now walking and he can't do it. Why? Well, he's been on trial. He's already been beaten. He's been up all night. He's been deserted by the disciples. He's been in total agony uh, before God. And now he's been beaten again, and he's crowned of thorns. He's had the robe on, then the robe gets ripped off. That's stuck to his back, which is, is a disaster already. And of course, he can't carry it, right? And so a certain man who's just minding his own business picks it up for him. Now, there is a real interesting historical footnote here. So in Mark's gospel, he mentions this story, he mentions Simon, and then he says, uh, Simon, the son of Alexander and Rufus. Why mention the kids' names? The only reason to mention the kids' names is that they knew who it was. Remember, John Mark and the apostle Paul traveled together, and then Paul, now, at the end of his letter to the Romans, interesting, Romans 16, who does he greet? Rufus. What this means is that people could go to Rufus and be like, is it true your dad was there? Yeah, my dad was there. They're Christians. But in this moment, he's just a Jew visiting Jerusalem who's carrying the cross of a stranger. Where are the disciples? They're not there. Where is any follower of Jesus? They're not there. The only person to help Jesus is someone that doesn't even know him. And so they, they walk, they're now at the place. Jesus has offered to drink wine and gall. That, that is essentially a narcotic to dull things. Now, if you've seen old Western films, you get shot. And what do you do when you get shot? You drink a ton of whiskey. Now, I just want to say, first service, I said vodka, and I had four people correct me and said they don't drink vodka in the West. I was like, how do you know? But <laughs> ask Josh Lockie, he was the first. And I was like standing there. Only thing he took from the sermon. Okay, so, no, it's not true. So you have, but you can tell him. Uh, shoot. So he's, you, you watch the old Western films, you drink vodka or whiskey or whatever, and what are you trying to do? You're trying to dull your senses. You're trying to not remember the event. And so they offer it to Jesus, and what does Jesus say? No. What is that? That is him saying, I'm in complete control I'm not dulling my senses. I know what I'm doing. He hasn't said anything at this point. He hasn't talked to Simon, like, hey, thank you. He hasn't uh, said anything to the soldiers. He hasn't said anything to the group of soldiers. He's, he's, been, care he's been helped by some random guy. He's now offered uh, wine and gall, and he says nothing. 
Now he's crucified. Now this is where it gets cruel. This is, now think about this. This is only for slaves, foreigners, and maybe soldiers who desert. No Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified. They knew how bad it was. And so they throw him on the ground. So he would have been thrown back, untied, and then the nails would have gone here. A lot of pictures of Jesus, which don't draw pictures of Jesus, but they put the pictures there. That's not, that's not where it is. It's, it's down here so that the nail can hold everything in place. And once they've got him nailed in, some people would get tied up, but they didn't do that to Jesus. Then you have the feet and you put a nail through the feet and now he's stuck. And then he gets hoisted up and now he's on there and he's got a couple things to deal with. One, if you let your body down, you suffocate. And if you lift your body up to breathe, the nails grate on your bones. That's what's happening to Jesus. So it's searing pain. I need to breathe. I'm suffocating. I mean, have you ever had a suffocating feeling? It's, it's scary. It's the worst, right? What's the worst way? Drowning. It's terrible. Suffocation. That's what's happening to Jesus. He's suffocating. And then he's in pain. Then he's suffocating. Then he's in pain. Sometimes insects would come and they would burrow into the wounds of the eyes and the ears. Birds would come and pick away at the flesh. That's what's happening here. And it's in public, so everyone can see it. So now we see the weakness, ironic weakness in verse 35 and following. Verse 35, I can't tell. I've got this one underlined, highlighted, written. I, you could do a whole sermon on this one if you like to bring out a lot in one verse. When they had crucified him. So think about this. First, in the New Testament, there's only that one phrase or Matthew's gospel about being crucified. It's like he just passes it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Think about this now. Jesus is put up on the cross. He is stripped naked. So a lot of pictures have Jesus with clothes on. No, there are no clothes. This is a shaming technique. And they're playing games two feet away from the most important event in history. They're playing a game. They're two feet away from the Son of God, and they're like, let's cast lots to see who gets his stuff. Which, by the way, is not very much because they shredded it when they shredded his back. You know, sometimes we think, oh, if I was just near Jesus or close to Jesus or in proximity to Jesus or I actually saw this, I would, be, I would believe. No, you would not. They are there. They're two feet away from him, and they're essentially throwing dice. That's crazy. So they put the nails through him. They put it through his hands. And when their nailing is completed, they lift him up. And they play games. There's a sign. It says the king of the Jews, second, verse 37. I just want to mention a little historical thing here. A lot of people think the crosses were lowercase t's. You know, I don't know how I can do that. What's there? Lowercase t's. And the reason they think that is because there's a sign above Jesus' head. And so what they think is, okay, now, now there must have been a little bit more wood just to uh, put the sign up. But that's not what happened. The crucifixes were t's, capital T. So if you look out at our cross, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. That's not what a cross is. The crosses were, you'd have one across, and then you'd get laid down, and they'd attach the vertical one to it, and then you'd come up as a T. And so Jesus is, is hanging 
on the cross. And at the center of that T is king of the Jews. It's a mock. Matthew then tells us, verse 38, that he's placed between criminals. And then all of a sudden, mocking kind of breaks out. And I'll just take these backwards. Verse 44 is crazy. The rebels join in and heap insults on them. So think about this. They've been beaten too. They've had their backs ripped off too. Their backs are up against the wood. And in this moment, they're like, we have enough energy to mock the guy in the middle. What? They're, they're dying. They're like, the last thing I'm going to do in this life is join in with the crowd and mock this guy. Now we know from other gospels, one of them converts. And here are the mocks. Destroy the temple, Jesus says. Destroy this temple, I will raise it in three days. And so they begin to say, you who are going to destroy the temple in three days, come down. Come down. You see where they think power is? He, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Think about what they're saying there. They agree that he has saved people. He saved others. He's healed people. We agree. We, he's, he's cast out demons. We agree. He's fed people. We agree. When they're, when they're saying he saved people, they're saying, yeah, we, we believe he did that stuff. Why are you crucifying a guy who walked around miraculously healing people? And yet, he can't save himself. Now, what is Matthew doing by putting all these mocking people in one spot? You've got these ignorant crowd. You've got these religious sinners. You've got these condemned sinners on the cross. And all of them together are mocking Jesus. And what is Jesus saying at this point? Nothing. He hasn't spoken yet. The reason Matthew does this is to mock them. Jesus is the Savior because he refuses to come down. Not because he can and does. The cross shows them a different way forward. I mean, even think about this now. Some of you covered up your crosses as I was talking about it in the first, at the very beginning. The cross is not so much a sign of brutality anymore. It's a sign of love. Jesus, in this moment, is totally transforming a symbol for us. What kind of king does this? I mean, what kind of kingdom is this? You, you may know uh, the story of uh, the mother of James and John, who is the overzealous sports parent who's telling Jesus, play my kid. And he says, uh, she asks him, well, can they sit on the right and on the left? And what does Jesus say to him, her in Matthew 20? You know that rulers and Gentiles lorded over them and high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that's on display on the cross. This is what Martin Luther talked about, that crazy Lutheran breakaway from the Catholic Church. The cross looks to the world like an abject failure but it's actually where victory is. You look at the cross, you think that's where the devil wins. And actually, no, that's where he secures his defeat. 
You think this is the point where you go, oh, Jesus is not who he claimed to be? No, actually, this is exactly what Jesus claimed to be. This is the defining proof of all of it. You know, as you think about then the Christian life of, oh, how do I apply this to the Christian life? Well, Paul uses similar language in his letter to the Corinthians to describe, okay, what does this mean? That we're in an upside-down environment. We're in an upside-down kingdom where the values are switched. Here's Paul, 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread aroma for the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, that phrase, triumphal procession, is something Rome did. Rome would have these massive parades. We know there's about 350 of them on record. They're in arches, they're on coins, they're in statues, they're everywhere. And what they would do is they would conquer people and then they would come in with their military and they would celebrate. And in the end were the slaves or the, the soldiers who they'd conquered, and at the end of the parade, they would sacrifice those people to the Roman gods, as if to say, we won. And now the apostle Paul is not saying, I'm leading the triumphal procession. He's saying, Jesus is leading the triumphal procession of which I'm one of the slaves. What a weird way to describe the Christian life, that Jesus is leading us towards death and is with us in triumph. And in doing so, the aroma of the knowledge of him spreads everywhere. That's the Christian life. All right. We look at this. We see Christ rejected by the nation, Christ rejected by the disciples, Christ rejected by the religious leaders. He's executed by uh, occupying power. It is absolute defeat. He hasn't said a word. And yet we know this is, he is not a victim. He's the victor. And we'll see it now. Forsaken Savior. Okay. First, verse 45. From noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Darkness is, a, is symbolic of judgment in the Bible. I'll just show you one place in Amos chapter eight, verse nine. Just see if you may hear anything the same. In that day, I will make the sun go down at noon. What time is it right now on the cross? It's noon. And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your festivals in the morning, all the singing into weeping. I will make you wear sackcloth, and you will have to shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for you on an only sun, and at the end of it, like a bitter day. Darkness is now fallen. Judgment is here. And now Jesus speaks. And I'm just going to call this out. He doesn't talk about the physical pain. He doesn't talk about his disciples abandoning him. He doesn't talk about the injustice of it all. The only thing he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time in scripture where we actually have the, the actual words Jesus spoke in Aramaic. That is, it was so memorable that they wanted to capture it as he actually said it and not as a translation into Greek. What is that? What is Jesus saying? Well, one, he's quoting Psalm 22.1. Guess what Psalm 22.1 says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's King David talking about his life and some of the things that are happening to him. But at the end of that Psalm, let me read it to you and just try to listen for things that might be happening to Jesus. 
This is symbolism. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart turned the wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. Pack of villains encircle me. Oh, here we go. They pierced my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's in his moment of need, he's quoting scripture. And there, there is a lesson here just for us. If you read the gospels, anytime Jesus is tested, what does he do? He just quotes scripture, that's it. Scripture, scripture, scripture in every test. You, you, you've got Parkinson's, you've got uh, terminal cancer, you've got things that are happening within your family, you've got roommates that are terrible. Scripture, scripture, scripture. All right. My God, my God. What is that? Well, that's not the physical pain. That's covenantal language. I don't know. Uh, we, we've been saying this week after week after week. So when God makes a covenant with a person... That person gets to say, and you will be my God, I will be uh, part of your people. I'll just give you an example, Exodus chapter 6. Obey my voice. This is the flip of what I just said. I will be your God, and you shall be my people. But we have an issue here. Jesus has obeyed God perfectly, and he is being forsaken in this moment. He is saying that. My God, my God, that's like saying, if you slay me, I will praise you. Jesus is saying, I'm in covenant with you. You're my God. I'm sticking through to the end. Why have you forsaken me? What is that? Well, from all eternity, Jesus and the Father have been in perfect relationship with one another. They haven't had a divide. They haven't been at odds. They've never sinned against each other. And for the first time in all of history, in all of eternity, Jesus walked in this world and the Father is turning his face away from the Son. Jesus is experiencing the things we should experience. I mean, just, just think of it this way. I'm stealing this from somebody else. Uh, you have a friend and your friend comes up to you and says, I don't want to be with you anymore. That kind of hurts, right? What, what if your kid said that to you? I don't love you anymore. What if your parents said that to you? I don't love you anymore. What if your spouse said that to you? I don't love you anymore. Leave me alone. Now, amplify that times a gazillion, and now you have Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, in perfect relationship, perfect love with one another, and in this moment, Jesus experiences for the first time what it's like not to be in perfect union with God. Later, New Testament writers will tell us what is happening. For example, Paul, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteous of God. So there's a trade happening. His obedience is now being counted to us. His righteousness is now being given to us. And all the things that we deserve are being poured onto him. And in doing that, the relationship between the father and the son is broken. That's what's happening on the cross. That is what, my God, my God, I'm in covenant with you. 
Why have you turned your face away from me? Why have you forsaken me? Or Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a pole. Jesus comes into this broken world and he experiences it. You know, what, what is the number one question people ask in all religious circles? What about pain and suffering? How could a good God allow this, that? And a lot of answers, but listen, there is no better answer than the Son of God coming into that and coming in our place for us. You got a better answer? A not so helpless king, a forsaken savior, and now the finished work, verse 50 through 56. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what he said, but the gospel of John tells us what he said. The last words of Jesus, it is finished, or it is accomplished. And immediately, earthquake, rocks, the curtain in the temple is torn in two, tombs are broken open, I'm going to leave that one alone. You can ask me later. People are walking around. <laughs> what is going on? Do you remember all the taunts? What, what did they taunt Jesus with? What, what was the taunt? The temple. You said you were going to tear down the temple, rebuild it in three days. What is the first thing that happens? The curtain in the temple is ripped in half. What is that? Well, if you would go to the temple, the temple was a place where there were a lot of barriers and God had put them in place, say, this is how you're going to relate to me. I am a holy God and there are steps in place of how you're going to relate to me. And one of those was the Holy of Holies. So the priest got into parts of the temple, but the Holy of Holies, you go in once a year as the high priest, you tie a rope around the guy in case God kills him so you can pull him out. And now Jesus dies and the curtain that is 60 feet high and soundproof rips in half, as if to say, the sacrifices are done, the temple is done, the glory of God is now spored out into the nations, and now where does God reside? He doesn't reside in the temple, where does he reside? In us, through the Holy Spirit, that's crazy. The author of Hebrews picks up this language, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, so he's talking about the temple, by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way opened to us through the curtain that is his body. So the author of Hebrews says, imagine the curtain being the body of Christ ripped in half. And because of the blood of Christ, we now go into with complete access and total assurance the very place that God had protected us from. With full assurance that faith brings, sincere heart, heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience having our bodies washed with pure water. It's open. This is a long ways away from Adam and Eve, making their fig leaves, hiding in the bush. God, don't, we're over here, you know. We're hiding. Them controlling the information people can see about them because they're afraid they won't be loved. We, we, we have many responses of how we interact with God, right? Like we... We, we're driven by a desire to please others. We, we're racked with guilt. We try to sign up for, what, what is this thing inside of us that we just don't want to let people down and so we sign up for everything and it's a yes for everything and then the guilt comes crashing down into our hearts. Why? Because we're like, I, I, I don't want to do this but I feel like I have to. 
or you do even something, a good thing. You, you say, I'm going to read the Bible. And you, finally, I read it. I feel so good about it. I'm, I'm in a right relationship with God now. Everything's great. Wrong. That's not how it works. Imagine if you don't, like, try to meet God halfway and you just go, you know what? I am not here to finish the work God finished. I am here to respond to the work God's already done. And so you owe Bible and you just go, I just love this. That's different. You, you can say no and yes to things because your, your guilt isn't going to crush you. You just obey because it's done for you. God's not doing this to meet you halfway. Do you think Jesus went through this to meet you halfway? Are you crazy? Did, did you just hear what I said he did? And the physical part wasn't even the worst. That's why the passion of the Christ, the movie Mel Gibson did, it doesn't really capture what really happened. It just did two hours of torture and it was miserable to watch. That's not the worst part. The worst part is he's forsaken by the Father. I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to hear sermons and I would judge them based solely on how convicted I was. And I'd walk out of there, man, that was amazing. I feel so bad. That guy really got me this week right between the eyes. Like he was talking to me. But listen, if you walk out of here guilty, you actually haven't heard a Christian message. You've heard half of it. We can confess sin to one another from the pulpit because we can have a free from guilty conscience. We don't have to walk out of here guilty. We can walk out of here free. We cannot walk out of here with pure hearts. We cannot walk out of here sprinkled. We can walk out of here cleansed, not convicted. Oh man, this is terrible stuff. Yeah, I'm awful. That's not the gospel. Jesus is swallowing up death in this moment. George Herbert said, you know, uh, before, before, oh yeah, death used to be an executioner, but in the gospel, death is now a gardener. It's that we get planted now in the ground and out comes something beautiful because God has taken away the sting of death and the power of death. Yes, death is smelling salts. Yes, death is reality. But Jesus doesn't go through this to just go, oh yeah, I'm kind of halfway with God and I'll do some stuff. He goes through this to rescue you. Eventually, this king will come back. Book of Revelation talks about it highly symbolically, but here's one place. Think about what's just happened and think about what happens here. I saw in heaven standing there was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are blazing fire. So it's no longer a crown of thorns, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on them that no one knows. He's dressed, it's not a scarlet robe now, it's a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword to strike down the nations. Now, does he have a reed in his hand now? He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The crown is, is now many. The thorns is now many crowns. The, the reed is now an iron scepter. The robe is now, is now a robe dipped in blood, and his name is King of Kings. This passage ends with two responses. The centurion sees all this and says, surely he was the son of God. I don't know if that's faith or, I, or if it's, man, that guy's different. I think that's what it is. 
who knows? And then the women. Look, here they are at the very end of this. There's three of them. They're, they're there. There are no male disciples. Here they are being brave. In fact, I want you to think about this. There is not one woman in the Gospels who does any action against Jesus. All of Jesus' enemies are men. And so you have a helpless king, not so helpless, a forsaken savior for us, a finished work. Let me just ask in closing, do you think Jesus went through this to meet you halfway? Like you come here and then I'll do the rest? Christian, do you think he went through this just to scowl at you? Like some of us picture God like perpetually disappointed. And you're just racked with guilt because God is perpetually disappointed with all of your decisions. Or can you just be free? Jesus is not moving away from you. He's moving towards you. You can be free. You, you can be convicted, but pull out of that conviction and walk out of here free. Unbeliever, what else does he have to do? Be honest with yourself. What else does the Son of God have to do to get your attention? You could be two feet away from him playing games. If you don't believe you're in this room, you're playing games. Christian marvel at the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Be free. You were forsaken, Jesus, on our behalf by God so that we don't have to say to God, why have you forsaken me? You have given us Christ's righteousness. You have counted Christ's righteousness for us. You have redeemed us. Lord, may no one here sit under conviction that just leads them to feel guilty all the time. May they sit under the conviction of the Spirit that leads to joy, love, freedom, cleansing, and that they can walk in complete freedom knowing that Christ has forgiven them and that you see Christ when you see them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing as we close.